Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, today we're going to be having an interview with Christian Williams. Christian Williams was suggested by Dana Smith from Campbell, California. Dana Smith wrote in, I listen and enjoy your podcast. Thanks for all your efforts. You often ask for interview suggestions and recently for podcast sponsored. I'm hoping Christian Williams will be both. I don't know him at all. I just enjoy his YouTube channel. Then he goes on to talk about his YouTube channel and his Facebook profile and gives me links to both which I'm going to be putting in the show notes. It took quite a bit of effort to, to make contact with Christian Williams. And finally, after doing some Googling of Christian Williams, I was able to find out that uh, the British Weekly newspaper, which is owned by one of our listeners and my friend Neil Fletcher, actually did an interview for the newspaper. And I contacted the writer of that, and she put me in touch with him, and we have this interview to thank for that. So, Mr. Smith in Campbell, California, thanks for your suggestion. I hope you enjoy this interview. Before we get to the interview, let me thank my sponsor, Sailrite. Since 1969, Sailrite has been equipping you with everything you need to sew for your boat, from bimini's and boat covers to upholstery work and even sewing your own sails. Sailrite is your one-stop shop for fabric, sail and canvas kits, tools, hardware and sewing supplies. Sailrite is also the maker of the patented Ultrafeed sewing machine, a portable heavy-duty machine that can handle all the sewing jobs for your boat and more. A passionate crew of DIYers, Sailrite produces high-quality, free how-to videos to empower their customers to turn their sewing dreams into a reality. Well, before we get on to the interview with Christian Williams, I want to make an announcement. I will be visiting New Zealand in... February and the 1st of March, I'll be on the South Island in February and on the North Island in March. And if we have listeners in New Zealand that would like to get together, write me an email, franz1 at medsailor.com, and we will try to hook up. No promises, but we can make an effort. All right, let's get on to my interview with Christian Williams. I am on the phone or on Skype with Christian Williams. Christian was suggested by one of our listeners as somebody that I should be talking to. And, and I searched and searched and searched for him, trying to find his email address. And it turns out, when I did a Google search on him, there was an article written about Christian uh, in the British Weekly newspaper. And, of course, the British Weekly newspaper is uh, the newspaper owned and edited by Neil Fletcher, one of our listeners and constant contributors to this podcast. And and Neil wrote me back and said, Franz, I can't believe I never suggested you talk to Christian. He's very, very knowledgeable, very well-spoken, and uh, has a great voice. So I, I looked up Christian Williams, and it turns out he's got a YouTube video, uh, several YouTube videos, has a, has a YouTube channel. But he has a fascinating life, and I don't know how much you're going to get through, but... Uh, you have uh, enough information and enough adventures that we could ha- talk for hours, but I'm not sure how much we're going to get through it today. But basically, what is of particular interest to those in this podcast 
is his sailing adventures. And you have sailed twice from California to Hawaii, single-handed. You sailed aboard an Ericsson 32, and it took you, I guess, 20 days there and 28 days back. You've also sailed with Ted Turner, and you were in the big storm. Wasn't a book written about that, Fastnet Force 10, that storm? And you also write books, and you have a book that you just recently published about <laughs> my fantasy, escaping on a sailboat and going on the lamb. But uh, thank you for agreeing to talk to me, Mr. Williams. Let's just start out. Well, first of all, when I called you today, you told me that you are in a mandatory evacuation zone. So tell me where you're at and what it's like right there right now. It's very hot spot, Franz, very hot here. Uh, I feel like I'm in the center of the universe, probably the subterranean universe. These these fires that are all around us um, look like, uh, you know, Dante's hell. It's an extraordinary insight into the power of uh, uh, nature. And uh, mandatory evacuation means I'm not supposed to be sitting here in my home studio talking to you, but I am. Well, are you going to get out of there after we get done? No, I'm going to stay. Um, I'm going to stay. I have a really big hose, <laughs> and when, when the when the hundred foot high wall of flames comes down the hill, I'll just squirt it with my garden hose. Um, yeah, we, we, you know, this is uh, life in in California this this year and some other years. Um, there's a tremendous uh, sense right now of. Uh, of ultra caution because uh, these things get out of hand quickly. But in fact, we're in no danger. Um, but all the streets around me are cordoned off, and uh, meter maids are, are standing there very threateningly, saying, "You you can leave, but you can't come back," um, which which would be fine. Um, so you have the whole neighborhood to yourself then, right now? I can. I can see the boat from the uh, from the bedroom window. Uh, we're about six miles from Marina del Rey here in Pacific Palisades, and uh, the world is entirely different there. You know, it, it's a it's a large artificial harbor, with uh, protected mostly from the wind. And um, um, so, should we obey the evacuation order, that's where my wife and dog and I would go to the Ericsson 38 called Thelonious II, which is which is waiting and well equipped with. The real necessities, which are Jack Daniels and uh, uh, and and, uh, and Myers Rum. <laughs> <clears throat> well, that's I've always thought if I had to live in Southern California, my bailout plan would be to be getting on a boat and getting out of there. Because if you ever had to make a, an evacuation of the whole city, you'd be just gridlock all the way because it's not that many easy ways to get out of this the, the city, and so. If you can head out to out to sea, you're much farther ahead. It's true, almost to a fault. You know, I'm from the east originally, and uh, I grew up uh, sailing. And it seemed like you would be in another country in one day's sail. For from the New York area, um, you know, a uh, hundred miles north into Long Island Sound, and suddenly you're among uh, people of Connecticut wearing red pants. And uh, a couple hundred miles south, and you're in the Chesapeake Bay with watermen um, who, who are shucking oysters and talking funny. But in California, um, the reason that I chose to sail 
to Hawaii was that's the only place to go. It's a remarkable fact. There are no bays here to speak of. Um, the coastline is much the same all the way to San Francisco and beyond. And there aren't any uh, uh, big bays or estuaries to, as there are in the east or, or, or in Florida or, or in the Gulf, too. It's, it's a very odd place. So uh, your, um, your cruise is 2,300 nautical miles instead of 100 nautical miles. Let's talk about how you became a sailor. So let's go back in history and talk about it. Since you said you started in the East Coast, let's, let's learn a little bit about you. Well, you know, I mean, my father was in World War II, and um, this isn't noted very often, but um, there was a World War II had a big effect on returning guys. You know, they were all 22 to 35 or so. And many of them in their exploits, my father was in the South Pacific, um, found an exposure to boats and yachting and oceans that they didn't have in their in their life. And um, my father was on a hospital ship. And when he came back, he said, you know, I, I, I saw some sailboats out there and we ought to get one. I was about, you know, nine. Um, but this was a trend all over the world for the Europeans. Uh, for example, Miles Smeaton, who's, who we've all read his marvelous book, uh, what's it called, uh, Twice is Enough, about his two attempts to round Cape Horn in, in his boat, Suhang. He had been in the British Army uh, in combat, and he uh, and uh, Smeaton realized that you couldn't get your money out of England in, those, in 1945, uh, but if you bought a boat elsewhere that somehow protected you from the, the, the taxes. And, you know, Blondie Hassler, one of the founders of the first uh, trans single-handed transatlantic race, was a, a bona fide war hero. Um, and I found it interesting um, to listen to these guys talk. Uh, one of my father's great friends was Phil Weld, who, uh, when he was 65, set the uh, single-handed transpac uh, record in his trimaran uh, um, moxie. And these guys, uh, you know, they were people's fathers. But I thought, my word, this is, uh, these are real guys. Um, Phil Weld, for example, uh, had been with Merrill's Marauders in World War II and carried a guy uh, uh, through machine gun fire, a wounded man on his back. So it was interesting to me as a little kid to watch my father um, build a penguin-class uh, frostbite dinghy in our cellar, and um, and I helped him at age nine, and uh, and learned to sail it. And uh, you've probably heard these stories from many people, but when you're nine and interested in something, and your father is 35 and interested in something. You are better than him at it in about 10 minutes. <laughs> so so I, I learned to sell with my father, who came in last in every race he entered. And I would, I would say to my 10-year-old self, you know, uh, you got to trim, you got to trim the mane uh, more, or you got to let the mane out, Dad. Um, and so I, I was propelled by, uh, by the world of the 50. I'm 76 now. Um, doesn't feel like it. Um, but that generation had a yen to do things, and I, I, I think I picked it up. Um, and it has stood me in good stead.
Um, this generation, I have, um, I am uh, on the video game Halo, I am rated, uh, what is it, I don't know, I have about 5,000 hours playing Halo because of my, my son. Instead of going sailing together, and none of my kids care a whit about sailing, we started playing video games at the dawn of video games. Uh, and um, so that has uh, filled the gap that for me was filled with boats and water and air and sun and clouds. And um, I don't know if that's good or bad, but I'm, I've, I've stopped judging generational um, uh, uh, experiences because they have their own and we had ours. Yeah, well, I still judge, and I think we had it better. <laughs> have you ever read the book The Life and Times of the Thunderbolt Kid? No, that's one I have not read. By Bill Bryson, who's a who's a fun, a very fun author to read. So if you ever get a chance, you might read about that, because that talks about, to a certain extent, me growing up in that era when, when Main Street America, every store was different and every store was unique, and every kid got kicked out of the house in the middle of the day, and and uh, came back in the evening, and there was a certain freedom and innocence that just is gone now. But it's a bit of nostalgic. We we were the, uh, you know, the the uh, effect of their cause. They uh, worked really hard, worried about making a living. Uh, but my generation was free to do whatever we bloody well felt. You know the, and I'm thinking of the. Democratic National Convention in 1968 and Abby Hoffman and everything. We were really a bunch of, of ne'er-do-well wise-asses. <laughs> Spoiled kids to a certain extent. Exactly. And, and, I, and I see in this current, I have four children, I, I see in this current generation a much more, um, let's say, fiscally conservative and worried perception about how are they going to make ends meet um, and so to some extent we were lucky, uh, and we got sailing out of it to have, um, been the product of survivors. Yeah. So you started out sailing dinghies. When did you get on your first larger boat? Did you start out racing on other crews? Yes. My father was a surgeon in, in the time when surgeons were gods and, and made money and took Wednesdays off. And so he had a succession of cruising boats. And um, his name was Manly Kidwallader Williams. And I have a couple of YouTube videos uh, uh, about uh, sailing in those days, uh, in, in particularly, uh, what's it called? Um, so I have this sailing channel. If you Google Christian Williams sailing or something like that, you'll come up with my sailing channel, which has 50 or 60 of my videos on it. And since I've been carrying a video camera around since I was 12, um, it, it, which would have been uh, that would not have been 16. A, that would have been a Super 8 back then. Uh, even before Super 8 millimeter, right, and then, and then Super 8. I was able to, uh, 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 there is some instinct in writers to record things. And uh, if you want to see what sailing was like in 1960s, um, I have a historical uh, 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 documentary, as it were, home movie, uh, on my sailing channel about this, which people uh, of a certain age find fascinating. I mean, you go to anchor at the sand pit at Port Jefferson, Long Island, and there are six sailboats there. 
you know, you go, I'm looking at a chart of, uh, I'm looking at a chart of Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket on my wall here. And uh, we would, we would pull on a summer cruise into Hyannisport um, and uh, toss down an anchor and uh, row the dinghy ashore and somebody would give us a ride to the grocery store and we would see a few other sailors, but that's it. And as we've all noticed, the world, e even though sailing is probably not uh, uh, proportionally grown, um, at least the way uh, the NFL has, uh, there are so many sailors now that every place is crowded to the gills. Um, yeah, that, there's no doubt about that. So you grew up on the East Coast then? Yes. My experience at first was uh, 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 Raritan Bay, which is, which is across from Staten Island in New York, and um, Cape Cod. And then I lived later on in Annapolis um, because... Um, I wanted to get serious about racing, and um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, the guys who are as old as I am have have done everything. Listening, listening to my bio is just tires me out. Holy mackerel! Um, um, so I so, so since we're interested in sailing here, um, Let's, so Mike's go ahead. I was just going to start. Dude, go ahead and tell me what you wanted to talk about, but I want you definitely to talk about the book that you wrote about. Ted Turner. Well, that was not. It was 1981. You know, I lived with Ted Turner for a year, and wrote a, a, a biography called "Lead Follower, Get Out of the Way," um, which is ancient history now. Um, and uh, it was because of my association with Turner through the uh, book, and I had done a long piece about him in the Washington Post. Uh, that I got uh, to sail in the 1979 Fastnet race, um, uh, the one in which uh, the big uh, storm hit. And um, that was a remarkable, uh, life-changing experience. Um, and uh, there's a wonderful, uh, or, or the best uh, video of the Fastnet race was made by Gary Jobson, who was my watch captain, you know, Gary Jobson, was Turner's uh, tactician in the 12 meter America's Cups that they that they won, and um, that's called that's an ESPN 30 for 30, which is also on the internet. And um, um, I, I always refer people to that for a, a capsule summary of of, of Fastnet 79, um, which taught us a great a great number of things um, um, about making boats safe. You know, we had uh, those boats, many the the uh, serious boats uh, had gone to carbon fiber rudder posts, um, which uh, in a quest for lightness, and uh, they broke. So we don't do carbon fiber rudder posts anymore. And, um, uh, um, and it also, I think, taught folks that um, you need to take ocean racing seriously, even though Fastnet was usually a light air race that drew families. Like, um, it's true, the Bermuda race, too. Um, however, I must say that uh, that was Mars and this is Venus. All of the things that caused people to die in 19, uh, in the Fastnet race of 79 are over now. When I go out offshore, 
um, it is with a, a huge confidence that I will not be hit by a hurricane. And the reason for that is, or run down by a ship, or a fall overboard. These are things that were um, marched next to you in, in my entire sailing experience up until about 15 years ago when GPS came in. Um, I, we, we spent, in my cruising and racing big boat career, there were many times when we didn't know where we were. And, you know, like somebody in a Francis O'Brien novel, they would say, Williams, up on the bow and, and, and listen at night in the fog, right, in Nantucket Sound. Mm -hmm. For, for uh, breakers, and, right. And, yeah, and you, when you heard breakers, then you saw some white stuff ahead. You, you shouted, tack. Um, but now we have uh, GPS that gives you an absolute certainty of your position under any conditions. And we have s satellite phones which allow you to download instantly uh, grib files and uh, surface analysis charts. And if you think that there is a hurricane, if there is a hurricane crossing your path, you can call your shoreside weather advisor who's sitting at his giant computer um, in New York City or someplace, and he will say, all right, well, we're going to put out the sea anchor and hang out here for two days, um, and he will keep you posted. We never had any of that before. We also now know um, the importance of safety tethers and jack lines on boats for shorthanded crews. And um, uh, e even the medicine part of it is much improved. And people have water makers, so they don't have to carry 500 gallons of water. Um, so uh, although fewer people seem to be doing it uh, proportional to the population, um, it's easier than it ever was before. I mean. You don't have to be Francis Chichester anymore to uh, cross an ocean in a yacht. So you, um, your your background is is a as a reporter and in television, and you're an author. I haven't read your most recent book, but it's one that's on my list of books to read. Uh, Rara, isn't it called Raratonga? Is that right? Yes, just came out last week. As a matter of fact, okay. very timely. The audio book will be out. Um, any day now, Audible says. Um, that is a, a novel about, um, suppose that you uh, were in lots of trouble, friends. Suppose the IRS was chasing you and all three of your ex-wives had a number of complaints and your business partners were uh, suing you and uh, you might have had some trouble with the cops of a serious nature some years before an ongoing investigation. And plus, You'd been a real dick to a lot of people. And you also had a Little Harbor 63, which is the boat I chose for our main character, um, Bobby Ayers, to try to escape on. Uh, well, can you escape? Um, uh, so, and that was, uh, people seem to, to like it. It's only been out for a week or so. Um, and uh, the other books, uh, uh, which are all on the same Amazon page of Christian Williams are, are nonfiction, which is what I always felt. Um, I've had a very contradictory career. I spent the first 25 years of my life learning to get it right and uh, make sure that nothing was made up, i.e. journalism, um, 15 years on the Washington Post and, and 10 years on other papers before that. And then I got into the world of 
television uh, from uh, uh, my first uh, job was on Hill Street Blues, which was a cop show, and I retired on Six Feet Under, which was a, a show that HBO had, um, and had to make it all up. And it, it's for me, as a writer, it's it, there's a constant tension between the needs of journalism, or at least theoretically perfect journalism, where the stuff is verifiable. It's almost like a science experiment. Is his middle initial G or not? Uh, and 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 uh, scripts uh, and and novels and the difference is profound. And um, and I think writers are writers because they they can't not be. Um, but um, but I spent most of my time uh, as a younger guy um, reporting, which which doesn't have really anything to do with sailing except this. My, my take on yachts, boats, the ocean, or the bay, or the lily pond where you push out your uh, model boat, is that by concentrating on the issues of sailing a boat, by having a tiller in your hand or, uh, uh, um, or a piece of line in your hand, and whether the line is cotton, as it used to be for dinghy uh, sheets, or uh, dyneema, stronger than steel, five bucks a foot, your attention is concentrated on the real world, the world of uh, sky and of fish and of birds. And, um, and in our normal business day, going from A to B to C to D, uh, we don't get any of that. And that's why I think why we like sailing. And to beat it to death, this has been the main thing that I've been exploring in these in the nonfiction books and in Rarotonga too, which is that um, what what is it about the ocean? Uh, what What is there out there that makes you continually return to it? You know, I've done all kinds of things in my life. Uh, I, I tend to think of, uh, of um, energies or, or goals in terms of lustra. A lustrum is, was the Roman five-year tax period. It's a very handy way to look at your life. Uh, uh, during this lustrum of five years, what will I do? Will I learn to play contract bridge as an expert? Will I improve my tennis game? Will I buy a, a, a FAR 40? And, and and with a $1 million racing budget and go all over the world trying to uh, win the FAR 40 Cup. Um, and uh, I've always come back to sailing. I've gotten tired of all the other things I've done and, and, and their lustra. And, and most of those things were very interesting to do. But sailing has never left me. And I think the reason is that it's a connection, um, not with you, but with the universe. And that's been the theme of my exploration uh, of this stuff, um, which sounds quite highfalutin, but every single person listening to this that has been one mile offshore knows exactly what I'm talking about. The whole world fades away. It's almost as if you've entered a different time zone, a different world zone. You hear the lap, lap, lap of the water on the bow. Somebody says, 
would you like a Diet Coke? And you say, no, not just now. I think we need to trim, I think we need to move the Genoa Fair lead one inch forward. And then the yacht heals or the or the dinghy just heals four degrees. And you think, ah, oh, that feels good. But maybe I've not, maybe I can head up some more. So you push the tiller or move the wheel a fraction, a tiny fraction, folks. We These are tiny things that we do with unconsciously to bring us nearer in perfect accord with the wind. And damn it, that's worth doing. And in all my years, I've never lost that sense of engagement with uh, the universe. I sure as hell don't have it here sitting in my home office with lists of things to do uh, on the wall and, and and the cops outside saying, you know, if you leave, you can't come back because of the fires. You're not retired because you're still writing. Is that what you spend most of your time doing? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you can't retire from writing. You, um, I think I, I, I did a form, I did formally retire. Um, I think it was 2010, six feet under was my last gig. You know, you don't want to work in television forever. My God. I mean, there's, it's very rewarding, um, but uh, uh, you're, you're not your own master. And um, uh, so people like me, uh, as they get older, uh, can uh, write books. And, and so that's what I can do. And also, if I might add, you can keep sailing. I mean, I stopped windsurfing. I, windsurfing was a big thing for me. And um, I was 50 years old and trying to do a water start in 25 knots. And I was really tired. <laughs> I was really tired. And I thought, you know, Jacko, you're 50 years old. I think your windsurfing days are over. And um, and, and this happened in, in other sports too, but I never aged out of sailing. You, you know, you, you're basically sitting down and, and still able to do it as well, as long as you're not sailing a laser in the Laser International's uh, you're still able to do it as well as a 25-year-old guy. That's true, that's true. But you're not doing uh, you're not doing the racing like you used to. I'm not invited on the racing boats like I was when I was younger either. So, <laughs> well, not on the foredeck, that's for sure. That's right. Um, um, we had a lot of fun racing Solings back. Uh, actually, it was a long time ago in Annapolis. We had a great Soling fleet, and it was a three-man Olympic keel boat. And um, uh, the guys I raced against that were very hard to beat were Stuart Walker, who wrote all those sailing books and, and is a great friend, or was until he died recently. And and Stu was at least 15 years older than I was. And, and the other super competitor was Sam Merrick, who was the chairman of the Olympic Committee that year. And Sam was, I, Sam was about 70 at the time. And they would, you know, and we were 39 and a half and they would whoop our butts just through experience, and uh, it, it was a it was a good uh, a good reminder that um, uh, although you won't you won't beat a twenty five year old in tennis, uh, you, you can do anything you want to on the race course, um, even on some pretty pretty uh, pretty exciting boats, not uh, not trapeze boats. But. Talk to me about your experiences with your solo sailing to Hawaii. Yeah, everybody wants to know, uh, including my some of my best friends, why, why do you do this? 
Um, and I think that the solo part of it, uh, the, the sailing part of it was just study, right, and preparation. There's stuff that any of us greasy grinds could do. But, but there was one part of it that scared the shit out of me um, because, like many of us, I am a social guy. I mean, I like to go to parties. I like to talk. And I like to have people around um, for reasons that a psychiatrist would probably uh, stroke his beard about. But, um, you know, Aristotle said we're social animals. We're animals of, we're people of the city. Uh, and, um, but what if you went alone? That would put you in touch with the universe and not in touch with other people. There wouldn't be anybody there to laugh at your jokes. There wouldn't be anybody to there there to say, wow, you're really good at that. There wouldn't be any applause. There wouldn't be any of the usual drivers. And um, so when I set out uh, five, six years ago and on my Ericsson 32.3, that's a, a mid-1980s um, sort of high-class uh, um, mass-produced American uh, sailboat um, with a lot of teak down below. I was more, <clears throat> I was very interested to see how I would do. I wondered if I would turn back. I mean, I, you know, you can admit these things later. You don't admit them at the time. Um, and the book I wrote about it called Alone Together is called that because I was a complete failure at being alone. I think that summer I was at sea for well, something like 50 days. Um, what was it? it was 22 days to to uh, 22 days to Kauai from Los Angeles and uh, gee, 28 days back uh, because I had to go to 42 north. Uh, which is way above San Francisco before I could turn right. And in those many, many days of being alone, and by alone out there, I mean no uh, radio of any kind, um, no ships for 10 days at a time, no, not even a contrail of a jetliner overhead, and I looked for them. And day after day of nothing but you, um, I had a real experience of almost like a, 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 what do you call the deprivation tank, you know, where they wrap you in cotton and remove you from all of the usual stimuli. Well, in the end, I realized I was a complete failure at being alone because there were all these people in my head. I wore my safety harness because I promised my wife I wouldn't drown myself. And I took that seriously. Uh, uh, and uh, every aspect of sailing had in it some part was I can't wait to tell X about this. I wish somebody else was here to see this now. And I think that I realized that we are uh, you can be lonely but you're never alone. And just to beat this to death, because I, I thought so much about it. So I did I did that sail to explore being alone. Um, and, you know, we're never alone. This is this is something that this was one of my uh, life changing insights from the time we're born until now. We are never alone. You know, a, a doctor slaps your fanny when you're when you're born 
And then if you think about sitting in your room as a surly teenager, uh, when your girlfriend has broken up with you and it's off with somebody else, and your mother and father are out of town or in prison or something, um, and you're sitting alone in your room, and you're so alone, but you're not alone because out the window you can hear an airplane going by and a police siren. And I remember driving to the Mojave Desert on my motorcycle once um, just to see what it was like to be alone. And um, actually, there was somebody on the back of the bike. And we were there about five minutes before she said, can we get out of here now? Because, because, because being alone is, a, is kind of like a vacuum. Well, what fills the vacuum is you. Your identity, your consciousness is really what exists, not the pelicans, you know, not the narwhals, and, and not the compass. It's all created by your own head. Yeah. And so in that sense, we create the world and we are the world. And um, you only get a sense of that when you are really profoundly, in quotes, alone, and end quote. You did it twice, though. Yeah, I, I, I left something behind out there, uh, and, and I still don't know what it is. It was a glimpse of something. I, I had to go back. I might have to go back again. Um, you just, I think the sports term is in the zone, but this is a little bit different. I mean, I, I take in the zone to mean you can shoot a three-pointer in basketball because the world stops and and up the ball goes and it just swishes in. Everybody says, wow, how did he do that? And, and you know, the um, LeBron James doesn't really know. He just put in his 10,000 hours. But for me, um, the, the experience uh, is as if you turned your head and there was nothing there. And after I got back from, I mean, I wasn't going to do this again. I sold uh, the first Thelonious. It, it sold in about a week and a half. I was astonished. Holy mackerel, now I don't have a boat. Um, but there was something, I, I would turn my head and think, wait a minute, you, there was something out there. What do you call that? Oh, it doesn't have a name. What was that sensation? Well, there isn't a name for that either. Um, well, it, it felt like a uh, really cool party invitation that I had turned down. So I went back and did it again. Um, and, and you wrote a book called Philosophy of Sailing, Offshore in Search of the Universe. Yeah, that was the, the uh, you know, I, um, I uh, uh, these ineffable things that we, that we think about when nobody's asking us, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, to make the car payment, um, are all questions that have come up in philosophy over the millennia. And um, they're useless in terms of, um, you know, polishing your car. But um, the questions that have that philosophers have <clears throat> approached are the exact questions I went back to find out the answer to, hence philosophy of sailing. And I tried to apply some of the some of the uh, some of the really obscure uh, uh, approaches to uh, consciousness, namely one called 
and it's almost a joke, phenomenal, phenomenology, um, which says, uh, and it, it takes a, it, it takes a, a book a thousand pages to say what I'm going to now say in a, in a paragraph. If you look at something, let's really look at it. Um, that is a phenomenological uh, approach to the question of what are we looking at and therefore who are we and therefore what is it possible to know. And um, so philosophy of sailing is a, uh, a non-scholarly and I hope fun attempt to uh, just figure out what it is out there that doesn't have a name. And whatever it is, it's something. Did uh, did you feel lonely in your solo sales, or or not? I mean, you sort of sound like you did, but maybe not so so lonely. You know, lonely is nobody loves me. Nobody loves me. I, even my dog turned away. Um, alone is just uh, nobody else is around. Um, so I felt alone, but not lonely. And um, and I think that that, would, that has been true of, of half a dozen people I've talked to about this who, who have recently made the voyage. Um, uh, um, they, uh, you know, there's great, I, I'm not selling single-handing. I recognize that most people have things they, other things that they would rather do. But the great thing about single-handed sailing for long distances, and I don't mean single-handed sailing from port to port, which would just wipe you out, you know, but, but, but you know, it's going to take two or three weeks to sail to Hawaii, and once you're away from the land, you're, you don't have to worry about hitting anything, so you can sleep with your self-steering gear working. Um, the great thing about self about solo sailing is that you don't have to worry about anybody else. Uh, I mean, I, when I have had my, taken my family cruising, you know, you're lying in your bunk at, at, at the mid watch and it's raining out there and you're just listening to the people talk, your child talk in the cockpit. And if they stop talking for one minute, you think, shit, if they fell overboard, I'm going to kill myself. And, and with solo sailing, you are responsible only for yourself. And man, you don't have to bring food for six. You don't need a water maker. I mean, I, I use a gallon of water a day at sea. You know, if you're out there 30 days, there's 30 gallons. There's not even one tank on most boats. You, um, it's it's cheaper. You don't have to pay for people's plane connections uh, <laughs> to meet you hither and thither. Um, and on the whole, uh, and then what I do and what many of us do is, uh, okay, so you get to the... Uh, you get to the Marquesas, say, and your family joins you there. Um, they fly in, you have a nice week together, and then they fly out. Um, and, and so I think that is, the, for me, the big selling point of solo sailing, um, which is it gets the monkey of responsibility off your back. It's a really freeing feeling to just think, okay, the sun's up. Um, I'm going to do the best I can out here today, and it's all on me. And I don't have to worry about um, people being seasick, which is one of my terrors. What are you looking forward to doing, let's say, in the next five years? I want to buy a hammock. <laughs> um, and do what with the hammock? 
put it on the forestay to the mast on your boat? And I'll throw it in the corner of the garage and go out and do something. Um, <laughs> I, uh, it's it's a good question that I can't and won't answer. Um, uh, um, I, I mean, it's just that I don't like. Uh, you know, if I asked you that question, you'd have to you'd have to commit to something. And um, the great the 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 great the pro beyond prices uh, have tomorrow be open. All right. So you're, but I, but you've got to be working on another book right now. What's it about? Yeah, I, I am not sure yet. I just finished this one, you know, a month ago. Um, um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't, I know a lot of writers and, and as a class of people, they're, they're, they're the least able to say what they do for a living of anybody. Um, they just, uh, they flop around in these conversations because they don't know where it comes from. And, and really, I don't either. The um, f fiction, especially, you you get an idea for, uh, I mean, on the question of what next, right? So I have an idea. I have an idea, which I won't bore you with, um, but there are sailboats in it. Um, but you then work on this idea for as much blood as can pour out of your forehead with all the usual feelings of incipient failure, insufficiency of talent, um, time running out. Um, and at some point, as you're typing, the book takes over. The characters that you've created say, no, 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 I would never say that. I would do it this way. And then you're just sort of riding this bucking bronco for, it takes me a year to write these books, um, the final draft of uh, Rarotonga, which is the current no the novel that just came out, the final draft was 320 pages, typewritten pages. Um, the, the draft that I thought was finished was 450 pages. And I am looking in my office here at, um, at uh, more than 2,000. So a, a box of uh, paper for a writer is 2,500 sheets. And uh, I, I go through a whole 2,500 box of paper coming up with one miserable novel that you can hold in your hand with one hand and throw across the room if you don't like it. Um, and uh, I guess the point is that uh, I'm not too worried about knowing just where this next project is going because it will tell me, and um, then I will be enslaved by it for another year. You know, a lot of people discipline themselves to being there, or do you, or do you sort of write when, when you feel like writing? Yeah, I've asked writers this question, too. Um, so my friend Jeff Lewis, who's written eight or nine novels, said, um, "Well, I get down to my desk about nine, and I like to have lunch about one." Um, and then he said. Unless I get down to my desk about 10.30 <laughs> and, you know, go to lunch at noon, um, I don't really think there's an answer. We're, um, you know, on a, on a, okay, so in a news, let's compare it, let's compare writing a novel to, or writing a book to working on a newspaper uh, with deadlines and working on a television show with panic. Um so a morning newspaper, you, you know, everybody gets in there 10 o'clock in the morning, 10 or 11, and, and you leave at 8, and the deadline is 6 p.m. or somewhere around in there. 
And a lot of days you don't do anything except talk to the prettiest girls. Um, you just, you're being paid and the money's rolling in, right? Um, maybe you work on your expense account. Um, and your whole reputation is, is, is created by the fact that you were up all night last Tuesday and you met this source and you've got this great story you're working on. But basically, you're, it's certainly not a, a, a 10 to 8 period of typing. And in television, <coughs> I mean, there's a room full of writers on, on a show like Hill Street or Six Feet Under or any of the cop shows I worked on. There's a room full of writers and we're trying to fill in a a, a, a blank a template on the wall of the three or four acts of a one-hour drama. And it's not working, and people say, oh, no, that's terrible. And uh, then somebody says, well, you know, my aunt uh, died of that, and it was horrible. Everybody else says, she did? How, how'd that go? And then somebody tells the story, the tragic story of their aunt, who was so they were so close to. And in the rewrite, the aunt becomes an uncle and then a dog. You know, mm -hmm. um, so the day is not spent typing. It's spent walking around, chewing gum, arguing with people, while the back of your mind is constantly and, and involuntarily, apparently, working on this problem of how do I get out of the fact, how do I get out of the fact that I said I would write a novel? Um, and uh, um, um, so... It is more structured in terms of typing, I think, than newspapers or TV. But still, sitting down at your desk at 10 a.m. or 5 p.m. or midnight doesn't help much at all. Um, you you have to sort of flog, flog the pages. And when you do, you find that next week you say, everything that I did on Monday and Tuesday is no good, and you throw it into the trash. Um, I mean, nobody's really interested in this. It's like, you know, how, how do you make paint dry? But um, it's not a very romantic or, or glamorous way to pass the day. In fact, uh, another one of my friends said, uh, why do you want to be a writer? You sit in a room with yourself all day. And and there's a lot to that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the solo sailing I've done, it's always been a week at a time. And I just do it. And that's for me, it's port to port. I'm in the Mediterranean, but I do it because I want to maintain my skills. You know, I want to be able to anchor by myself. I want to be able to come into a, a med moor by myself. I want to be able to drop an anchor and swim a line ashore by myself. And it's always a challenge, and it's it's a lot of a lot of thinking in advance of what I have to do. I have to plan in advance. So, but I'm I'm never done longer than 24 hours at sea by myself. So I've, I've never experienced that yet. Does, does it have appeal, friends? Well, I'll tell you, after I'm by myself for, for about a week, I'm lonely. I'm looking for my crews to come back. But by the time they're there with it for a week, I'm ready to be by myself again for, for a little <laughs> while. So it's, it's, it has its appeal when I'm, not, when I'm getting tired of people. And then after I'm never, not around people, then I, then I find, you know, I'm not that interesting to be with by myself all the time. So <laughs> it goes both ways. So. But if you're alone, nobody can tell. Right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, and, and I'm getting off and going to a cafe every night and wandering around. So it's not like I'm very long alone. But when you walk in, go into a port, especially in the Mediterranean, most people are there on vacation with somebody else. So they're not looking for 
for new friends to make. They've already got their, their social group with them. So you, you, are, you do tend to be alone amongst crowds. At least that's what I've found. But again, every now and then I meet somebody that I would never have met if I was sailing with somebody else because, because you've all, just like I was t- saying, I've got my, my entertainment around me and if I'm by myself. Suddenly I've, I'm opening myself to experiences that I wouldn't have had if I were with somebody else. So it's, it's good and bad, so, so I guess I like it, and that's why I keep doing it every year. I always give myself about a week to sail by myself. But anyway... So you are the proud owner of a of a, a Sailrite sewing machine. As a matter of fact, yeah. After, uh, um, I think if you're considering buying a sewing machine, you've got to look at my video, which compares sewing machines on, on my. You know, it, it, you know they're free, and I'm not asking for any Patreon money either. It's just uh, sort of a hobby of mine. Um, but I went through two. I started with. About five or six years ago, uh, with a, a home machine, a singer that I bought call, uh, called, um, I remember, I've forgotten the number of it. So I went through two, then I bought another singer, slightly larger, but not a professional machine. And um, I've, it took me five years to, to get up the uh, commitment to buy uh, the LSZ-1 from Sailrite, and I'm glad I did. Um, but it's pretty tough uh, to tell somebody, oh, you want to sell your own on your own boat, go spend 750 bucks, um, because if they don't like sewing, it winds up in the corner for the rest of their lives. And as I have said many times, sewing is a, sewing is a I mean, it really helps to be a compulsive or to have OCD or something, because sewing is 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 something that requires a lot of fine work and a lot of little tiny tools and a lot of setup and a lot of put away afterwards. Um, yeah, I do have a Sailrite machine. What projects have you made with it? I made all the canvas on all my boats uh, except the sails. And okay. there's a there's a lot of canvas on boats. I mean, uh, uh, and my cockpit cushions, and um, and some interior cushions. Although mostly it's exterior stuff, um, sail covers, and um, covers for the cockpit cushion. I mean, which is the cockpit awning, which is 13 feet long. They're all in in my videos. You can see all the all the covers. And I now have I now keep everything covered with umbrella, um, because I have. I put all new acrylic hatches. I changed the acrylic in my hatches. Um, and uh, if you don't cover acrylic, then after five or 10 years, it gets uh, crazed, as we all know, by looking at our hatches. Mm-hmm. And um, so for me, um, being able to make covers for everything um, is a great boon. And also kind of a nice hobby because you get to be a sort of a self-taught, um, you get just above amateur level. Now I can walk down a dock after five or six years of this and, and uh, admire the stitching in a professional sailmaker's work or uh, recognize what a crummy job that professional did for that guy. And um, uh, but you, But you have to really um, have a psychiatric condition of some kind um, because uh, you can hire somebody. So I made, 
I, I broke down this time because I have, uh, this concludes my remarks about s sewing, which I call, which Poppy, <clears throat> which Popeye and I calls sewmanship. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, I broke, because I have, uh, I put new, la uh, I put new uh, Lazy Jacks on my boom. And I wanted a cell cover with slots in it for lazy jacks. Don't do it. It's a, it was not a good idea. It takes, I think there's 60 snaps on my cell cover, and it takes me half an hour to put it on and off. Anyway, I decided to have a professional sailmaker make this uh, for this 38 foot boat, uh, make the bleeding cell cover. Good. He charged me $600. Now, if I had gone to Sailrite and bought this umbrella, um, I would have spent it and the snaps, right, and the and the mm -hmm. and the V ninety two thread, and then and then sewed at my rate. Uh, it would have cost me probably three hundred dollars in materials, um, and this guy did it in a week and installed it and took it back and fixed it and put it back. So, I don't think that um, the the appeal of a sewing machine is that you're going to save money, but rather that you have mastered yet another. <laughs> art of the ancient naval tradition yeah that's what that i i agree with you 100 percent. i think i think i hear this argument a lot from a lot of people is oh, just pay somebody to do it just it's cheaper and i know it's cheaper but you learn nothing by paying somebody to do something for you you uh, you don't gain any skills you don't make any mistakes i i i'm i'm with you 100 percent on that you I like to learn skills. Well, you, you scared me a minute ago when you said that, you know, you Mediterranean more. The fact is that I, I think once in my life, I've been on a yacht that Mediterranean moored and I would not know how to do that. And I, and I have, I have every confidence. It's not so easy in a crowded Mediterranean Harbor. Um, you know, but you, you, so you have, you, you have to drop the hook and back in, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, so you can teach me that friends. Okay. I'll be glad to come out and go sailing with me next summer. All right. That'd be great. <laughs> so Christian, we've been about an hour. You told me you'd talk to me for about an hour. I really appreciate your time at some point in the future. I'd love to get you back on and I'm going to put links to every, uh, you know, your YouTube video and your books, uh, on the website Thanks so much. Do you have any other comments you'd like to make before we finish up? No, just uh, glad to be here, and let's hope that they put these fires out so we can do this again. All right, stay safe, okay? Thanks, friends. Bye. Bye-bye. I'm going to try to enlist your help in keeping this podcast going. I've been producing this podcast since January 23rd, 2012, and it's been a labor of love. And <laughs> for the most part, uh, non-monetized labor of love. And I need some sponsors. So if you are interested in helping me keep this podcast going, I would like to encourage you to think about and perhaps recommend companies or people who you think might be sponsors of this podcast. And let me give you a little bit of information which would help bolster the argument that they should sponsor this podcast. This podcast has been in continuous production since January 23rd, 2012. It's the oldest continuously running sailing podcast out of the 
500,000-plus podcasts available in the iTunes directory. So far, there's been more than 425,000 downloads of this podcast. This podcast reaches a worldwide audience, the top countries of the United States, and then Great Britain, and then following that, Australia. So primarily the English-language countries. 56% of our listeners are 45 to 54 years old. And 43.3% of our listeners are 55 to 64 years old. So this is a mature, affluent listener audience. 68.1% are men and 38.2% are women. This is a very strong community. I get quite a few emails from listeners and I try to engage with the listeners and get people on that they want me to interview. So if you write me a letter and you say, hey, you might want to talk to this person, I always try to reach out to the person you suggest and try to get them on for a podcast. So it's a, it's a fairly tight community. I consider my listeners my friends. So who should be interested in sponsoring this podcast? Well, this target market is a highly affluent boating community. And in 2016, the recreational boating market in the United States alone amounted to $36 billion. So people or companies who should consider sponsoring this podcast would be yacht charter companies, water sports apparel companies, boat equipment manufacturers, boat safety equipment suppliers, sailmakers, boat accessories such as eyeglasses, hats, and so forth, boat builders, and travel agencies. And anybody that's trying to market to this very specific niche community. I have more information available at the website, and I'm willing to talk and meet with anybody personally that's interested in being a sponsor for this podcast. Just write me, franz1 at medsailor.com, and I would really appreciate your help in keeping this podcast going. The website is www.medsailor.com. Or simply medsailor.com, M E D S A I L O R.com. Thanks. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing.